So welcome to another episode of Industry Insight uh, with me, Joe Meredith. Uh, pleased to be joined today by Claire Stanley. Claire, can you just give us um, an intro into who you are, what your role is? Yep, so I'm Claire, as Joe introduced me as. Um, I am Senior Communications and Engagement Manager at NHS England and I work within the Southwest region. How long have you been there? Three years. Okay, and previously? Previously in policing with a short contract in private healthcare um, and then prior to that, another healthcare provider, NHS-wise, and policing again, so all public sector experience in the main. Nice. Now, uh, I've known you since uh, early 2000s when we were kind of both starting out, I guess, in the, the media world. Um, for those of that are many thousand hundreds of thousands listeners who won't know can you just give us a little insight how you got into the industry and what the pathway was to the role you've got now yeah so um i graduated university in 2003 um that degree was in journalism always knew i wanted to be a broadcast journalist rather than a print journalist so throughout that time did a lot of work experience within radio stations um on the back of that, I got my first job in uh, Guernsey in the Channel Islands as a broadcast journalist. Worked there, got a bit of um, experience under my belt for a few months and then went across to Cardiff where I worked for another commercial radio station moving on to BBC. And then came across to Bristol um, and ended up in a couple of roles in the city and then at what was original radio station covering news and sport. That led me into media training, so talking to police officers at the time about how to deliver messaging to the public in layman's terms, really simple speak, um, and as a result, a job came up and I was asked to apply. So it feels like I kind of fell into communications because it was never really my career aspirations and goals to do what I do now, but I love what I do now. So just going back a little bit... Um... Obviously, you kind of worked as a when I kind of worked with you as a sports journalist or mm -hmm. broadcast journalist. Yeah. Um, what elements of that did you kind of did you enjoy most? Were you um, kind of was it kind of the sports side, the news side? Um, was it feature pieces? I think it was a bit of everything. So no day was the same other than you know when you were the on-air newsreader so you had your shift you'd do x amount of news bulletins you'd write your own scripts but around that you'd find stories you'd go to press conferences news would emerge you'd find out background from that so I think it was a bit of everything really and the pace of it so really fast um in terms of, you know, finding the angle, the story, quickly beating your competitors and turning an engaging story around for people to hear and listen to. Now, without being detrimental to the commercial stations, did you ever kind of find times that as a journalist for BBC, you were maybe taken slightly more seriously than you might have been when you were working at the commercial stations? Um, I think that's just to do with the gravitas of the BBC brand, to be honest with you, you know, we all know of the institution that is the BBC. We don't know about every commercial radio station in the country. Um, but I wouldn't say it meant we got taken less seriously. You know, we were all doing our job and we're on the same level. And actually, you'll find that a lot of commercial journalists have got 
an edge over BBC journalists because they're not bound and restricted by some of the guidelines that the BBC have. Were there any pieces you broke that were kind of like, oh my gosh, I broke this piece? Not that I broke, but I remember being on air in the very, very early days of my career um, when the London bombings happened on the tube. Um, I think Tony Blair was Prime Minister. Feels like so long ago, <laughs> show my age. Um, and I remember having to kind of ad-lib, recapping on the story as it unfolded live on air until the Prime Minister gave a national address. So that was exciting, daunting, nerve-wracking, all in one. Um, and getting your timings right is really hard. Thanks. Um, have you always wanted, you know, obviously you studied at university journalism, have you always wanted to work within the comms role in industry? Um, I guess so. I always wanted to be a journalist. Um, yeah, from as long back as I can remember, my parents say the same. You were adamant you wanted to be a journalist. I think it's because I was not so good at maths and better at English. Um, and a lot of communicators tell you that. Um you use your strengths and, you know, I, I'm a sociable person who likes to talk, so. But I think it's a good point, obviously, uh, working in that industry, you need to be able to kind of be brave enough to walk up to someone and ask them a question that others might not necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. It does take a certain level of confidence and it, you do get daunted at times, particularly as a journalist. You know, I've met some some high profile people and you're kind of all struck um, because of what they've achieved but you've still got to hold a, an intelligent conversation that people can understand. So you, when you graduated uh, 2003, is that right? And kind of yeah, had right. a pathway through to the role you're in now. Do you think it's changed slightly for students who are kind of just coming into the industry now? I think in terms of journalism, yes and no. I think there's a lot more internships, there's a lot more emphasis put on getting young new talent into roles like this. Um, back then, it was really hard. Um, you know, I can remember sending off demos, CVs everywhere and the rejection is, is really difficult to take when you're 21 years old and trying to break into the industry. And for me, it was it was not what I knew, it was who I knew. So I used to um, fly for club nights for a local radio station. Then I got work experience in the newsroom as a result. And a job came up from one of the former journalists who put me in touch with his old editor. Um, and they coached me um, and had an interview and luckily got it. Meant moving quite a long way away. But that's that was a sacrifice I made to do the job that I love. So it's quite a good point, actually, because I think students now do have a platform, you know, social media, where they can showcase all of their work and be really reactive with it. Whereas back then, I guess, what was it? Sending off VHS tapes? Mini disc. Mini disc. <laughs> Mini discs. Have you still got any of those? I have. Was it just purely audio then? Purely audio. So did you do like um, uh, a fake news piece? This is Claire Stanley reporting for the Stanley News. No, not really. Um, you, I took original scripts from the newsroom where I was working, doing work experience um, and, and read those. Okay. But you, you kind of... If you of... can dig those out, we can kind of dub those in at this point. I'm not sure about that. We, there must be technology to convert <laughs> mini-discs. <laughs> um, moving on, you mentioned that you worked for the police force. Yeah. Another public sector. 
um, you kind of you've had a brief spell of seeing commercial radio and other areas yeah. in the uh, private sector. What's what's the biggest difference for you between the public and private sector? So I feel the public sector is not legislated but governed differently. So we there's certain things we can and can't do. Um, you know we have to be careful in terms of rules and regulations. Private sectors. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's easier because I felt in the roles that I've completed that it was more sales targeted and driven. Even when it comes to communications, you're always trying to um, raise the profile to build new clients um, and to please clients and to drive revenue. Um, and that wasn't really what I ever wanted to do when it came to communicating. It was about having a real meaning and purpose. And that's why I feel my career has always taken the public sector route. Do you feel though, maybe I guess within, I mean, this is talking about someone who owns a creative comms agency. You've a little bit more freedom though in some of the work you can create in the private sector. Yes, but depending on who your boss is, I would say. So if you have a boss that understands communications and engagement, absolutely. And they'll be on board with innovation, you know, um, different and driven messaging if you have a boss and I mean kind of you know high level high level not not your direct lines in communications um who think that communications is a poster then you really struggle um or a press release because they don't have the impact that people expect them to have um because it's a press release and it's a poster on a toilet door. I mean, can you honestly say you take notice of what you see on a toilet door? You you probably don't see it, but the wall, maybe. Yeah, it's a great question. It's not one I've ever thought about, to be honest. I mean, I guess it serves a purpose for certain things. But yeah, I mean, going back to a press release, though, a press release traditionally, obviously we do sound very old when we talk about this, would be just kind of fire out to kind of national and local media Whereas now it's very much kind of socially driven as well. Absolutely. I think most of our stories generate reach via the social platforms rather than the general email hit that we used to do years ago and still do now. We still do use email, um, you know, and content management systems to push those out to big databases of people. But the successes generally come from the reach and engagement on social channels. So just um, kind of moving on. So I guess the last 12 months you know, uh, I'll say it for you, though. Um, most challenging, maybe, in your career, Absolutely. Uh, given the kind of the pandemic. Can you just give us a little insight into how it's affected your role, challenges you've met? Well, I think the first thing to say is the pandemic has hit everyone in every industry, you know, and there's a lot of people, commun not communicators alone, that have adapted to a work from home model, you know, with families to care for children at home, you know, kids not at school. So that brings a challenge in itself in a pandemic while trying to do a really important job, um, particularly for the NHS. So it's been a couple of words to sum it up, challenging, exhausting, rewarding. Um, and it's brought a real sense of um, camaraderie in our team. I mean, we were always a really good team, but this is bringing us even, sorry, brought us even closer together. Um in terms of the actual role itself, it's changed because it's simply become COVID-driven. 
Um, in the first half of the pandemic, so last year, there were a few of us working on COVID in the very, very beginning, talking from February time before it came, the situation that we know it is today. Um, we then all adapted as a team to support the COVID rollout. So in our team, we have internal engagement, we have social, we have crisis comms, we have geography portfolios, for example. We all work on different areas because the Southwest is so big and all that was brought into one place and we shifted to a roster system. And that was literally to serve the demand of not only all the healthcare providers in the NHS in the Southwest, of which there are many in not just hospitals, but communities, delivering all the messages that we needed to um, from an NHS wide perspective. Um, so that all came together in being a challenge that all our roles changed. It wasn't just your creative comms. So for me, for example, I lead on flu and winter. We start that in the summer. That had to be incorporated, but at this time it was evaluation point and that kind of went by the wayside. Now, that's hard as a communicator because evaluation, and as you know, Joe, is key to what drives your next successes. So um, it all kind of stopped apart from the internal comms and the traffic to our inboxes was huge. We had... Um, increased contact with our national media team in London so normally in the regions so the southwest and northwest we work on our own autonomy and we make decisions based as a team whereas everything went to what we call level four incident which is the highest incident we can go to in healthcare so it's controlled by the center and that brings massive changes to communications because everything is directed by government more or less so what we can and can't do is directed by London. Um, it can become frustrating at times, not just for us, but for every communicator we work with, because when you know your local populations, you adapt your communications to suit and the London perspective doesn't always suit. So that's been a massive challenge, not just for me, for healthcare professionals, you know, probably nationally, but definitely in the Southwest. And I, I imagine as well, over the past 12 months, communications had to change and you've had to be so reactive kind of due to everything changing almost weekly and daily. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard because a lot of our um, things that we react to are data driven, but the data changes all the time. You know, we publish it every Thursday, but you get that question on a Monday from a national journalist and you can't tell them. You, you can only point to the data from the week before um, so it's out of date. And, you know, as communicators, you want to be as up to date and accurate as possible and as factual as possible. So it, it, it drives real challenges, you know, and it's it's also really hard to see that the pandemic has changed people's perspectives. If you look back to access to services, for example, across winter, we do a huge push, not only for people to get a, a flu vaccination, but to use the right services appropriately. And then in the pandemic, we saw, you know, that drop off as a mum myself rocking up to children's A&E. It was empty. That scared me not only as a parent, but in the role that I do. So people haven't been listening to messaging because they're so scared of COVID-19. I guess as well, the one thing that's kind of quite relevant is over the last 12 months, the NHS has probably been the biggest talking point amongst anything else obviously there was uh the clap for the nhs and the level of empathy for nhs workers has kind of gone through the roof um how has that kind of supported your role in any way 
It supported our role in terms of seeing the great human side. And everyone forgets, you know, the faces behind the NHS, we're all human beings. So you read all the negativity in the media about the failures of the NHS, not enough budget. But there are real people behind this, your wife being one of them. Um, the pandemic means we've people have listened more to those people's stories. So although I'm an NHS worker, I don't feel like I've made an impact anything on the level of those frontline workers that have, that have put their lives on the line to to save people. And do you find, obviously we, we talked about this earlier, but predominantly when you're communicating, you'll use real people uh, yeah. within the NHS. Do you find that, because when you are communicating on a national level, obviously the point you're trying to make uh, needs to be relatively to the point and there needs to be messaging behind it. So using real people um does that kind of make that communication slightly easier for you then? i'm a big believer in authenticity and i think if you use real people that have that experience then their message comes through and their message is aligned to yours but hearing it in a real genuine way is better than me or the team scripting something that doesn't sound authentic because I think, I mean, obviously, we know with social media consumption, um, kind of drop off, drop off, you know, pretty early on in a video is quite high. So, if there's an important message that needs to be within that content, you know, how are you how are you engaging those people? Because ultimately, the messaging you have can kind of pretty much help someone's quality of life or even save lives, I guess, to a certain extent. So, how imperative is it to kind of ensure that the content you're creating or the levels of communication are as engaging as they can be. It's a really interesting point to make because you, you use the word engagement throughout. So, um, for example, you could be working on a service transformation project where communication is key, particularly in the NHS where services do change all the time to meet not only the needs of the population, but budgetary constraints to improve the service. So, for example, you speak to... Um, heart attack survivors you know you engage with them to understand what worked and what didn't work as a service and you use that intelligence to shape your communications objectives going forward so you look at actually if I need to change this service I need to get x from potential heart attack survivors or victims um, how do I make their their journey better in the NHS and you take that information to shape the communication to change the service does that make sense yeah but then on the other side, how do you engage people when it comes to campaigns? So you'll have seen through the pandemic the encouragement of trying to bring people through the front doors of the right services. Now, normally that is nationally driven and and to an extent it has been this year with things like, you know, um, 111 campaigns, you know, uh, flu, winter. And you're engaging with a massive population there and and a lot of it is on social or on television, do you take that message away because it's repetitive? I would say not always because sometimes you feel it's not relevant. The pandemic, I feel, has changed that because people have been um, impacted by the way services have changed. So from a, as a comms professional, we've had to think of innovative ways and different innovation to engage people who might not need that service now but might need A&E at a later date and aren't using it or might have, you know, a lump and need to see a doctor, but 
don't know how to access GP services. So it's been really concise in, in your aims and objectives of what you want to achieve and how you engage those people. So it's not just sporadic social media posts. There has to be a thought process behind it with the determination of an end goal. And I guess kind of going back to where I was before, kind of ultimately any any campaign uh, traditionally will have a, a long-term strategy on it. But again, with everything evolving and changing so quickly, I guess that kind of makes communication, certainly with regards to COVID, so challenging. And I guess it also has an impact on communicating any other campaigns, like you talked about heart attacks, uh, strokes. Does that just completely take a back seat with regards to communication? It hasn't taken a back seat because they're still driven nationally, usually by Public Health England. So if you think the Act Fast campaign that we all, you know, we know we've known it, we see it yearly all the time, you know, to to recognise the the um, the symptoms of stroke. But what I think has happened is people are not as tuned into it because they want to hear the COVID messaging, they want to see life return to normal. So it's more about listening to that that targeted messaging and engagement on how we get life back to that new normal. So at the moment, the focus is on vaccinations, you know, who's eligible, who isn't, what's the uptake rate. Um, our messaging is around waiting lists and recovery of services, because, as you know, in the in the first wave of COVID, a lot of services were stopped, selective surgeries, um, some some treatments for diagnoses and the focus has shifted throughout. I suppose that's one good news story that you've been able to work with is the rollout of vaccination and how quickly that has helped. Has it been has it been difficult though, I guess, trying to keeping up with how quickly that's been? Um been no, out? because we've had a set plan set by, you know, government and, and national teams. So we know when the cohorts come up. Um the hard bit was the initial phases. We were working around the clock to find case studies, to find filming points. Um, and that's it's one bit that I've loved as, as a communicator. I remember the, I think it was the second or third week of the vaccination programme starting and I went up to Gloucestershire Hospital to their vaccination hubs and all the care home workers were being vaccinated. And I met, you know, the, the real heroes of the NHS you know, and, and care workers who have been keeping all these elderly residents, residents safe. And we were doing a piece with Sky News and local OTV and it was just wonderful, you know, to see how quickly a project of that scale has has been rolled out, not just in Gloucestershire, but nationally. You talked about having to innovate communications. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when we went into lockdown first, things like TikTok kind of took a huge, huge rise. Mm -hmm. Um Social platforms are changing all the time and how we communicate on them. How quickly can you be reactive to kind of jumping on those uh, those platforms? So, so traditionally, a lot of your communications via Twitter and I guess traditional media. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. How How would you like to be able to kind of utilise those platforms? I think uh, from my perspective as a communicator, every platform has a purpose and, and a use. You know, because you're not targeting the same audience. It's about, you know, we all know that different people are on different platforms or across all of them based on age, whatever, geography, whatever characteristics you want to look at. So it's hard not to just from from this role's perspective, you can't just rely on socials, you know, because 
you're not going to reach everyone just on Twitter. So you have to rely on traditional media and, and use your influence and engagement skills with media to push your message. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas I'd love, you know, you've seen in the pandemic hospitals themselves doing TikTok videos. Yeah. And again, it's it's the faces behind the message. But is there a reason that you don't use those other platforms? Um, for us, it's governance, you know, and it, you can fall into some very tricky issues as a public body. Um, so we generally have them at a national level, but not rolled out into the different regions. It's It's been looked at. And if the benefit outweighs the risk, then we can use them. Because um, I guess that must be a frustration. And that's probably one area where kind of ultimately, if you are working for a small private company or something like that, you can be really reactive and you go, OK, let's get a, chip, a TikTok or a chick-chock uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in comparison to policing, you know, we did a lot of engagement with communities on Facebook. So you would have the chief constable doing Facebook lives or Instagram lives. Um, You know, we'd have internal chats using, you know, lockdown pages and they were real assets. But I guess, again, police forces are based on smaller areas than NHS, uh, NHS England or the NHS as one whole body. So it's... um, it's a very difficult balance to strike. Speaking of um, our friend social media, um, how has it contributed to this spread of um, fake news and scaremongering? Oh, I think it's had a massive part, you know, particularly in some of the older generations. I mean, some of the things my own parents come out with that they've read on socials, you just want to laugh. But there's a lot of people out there that believe the fake news and that has a massive impact on your message because if your message isn't strong enough or from an authoritative voice or from a trusted source, then you're losing the battle. So how do you combat then? Uh, the the blue ticks are obviously um, really important to us in terms of being a trusted source because... Um, it, it's it's raising awareness of if you're going to look for information, go to those places, you know, and there's there's lots that exist um, rather than reading, you know, a post that Mrs. Miggins down the road has popped on about vaccinations or myths or, you know, their own experience because there's two sides to every story and often one side isn't the truth. So would you would you engage with those platforms, your Twitters and Facebooks to kind of help um, kind of battle some of the, the, the spread of fake news and scaremongering if it has a detrimental effect on what you're trying to do? There's a lot going on nationally to target that. It's not something that I do specifically within this role. We report it in, we raise concerns and then obviously... Um, the powers that be have those conversations with with the bodies. Um, and I think there was an announcement from Facebook last week about Facebook on vaccination and COVID clamping down on fake news. So, yeah, it's really, really important to to have those organisa- organisations on side and for them to be accessible to help make the change um, because you, changing perceptions is a difficult job. Do you worry, though, um, just playing devil's advocate, do you worry, though, that kind of taking that approach, you're almost controlling... Kind of because ultimately people want free speech and they want to be able to kind of be educated by both sides and make their own mind up. Mm-hmm. Do you worry that if you're if Facebook is saying what can and can't go up there, that level of control kind of almost takes that free speech away? I when you put it like that, it does. Um, but I think in the world of a pandemic, you've got to trust the scientists. You've got to you know 
trust the academics in what they're telling us. They've studied this virus. They know the outcomes. You know, we're still learning now, particularly as as COVID-19 mutates. Um, but you could change. You, it's, I, for me, I see it as a matter of between life and death. That's the choice you're making. And does your, I mean, obviously, that's a part that you kind of play in fighting fake news and the scaremongering. Does your messaging have to be even stronger to a certain extent as well? Or do you just have to trust your messaging? You've got to trust it. Um, and you've just got to tell people the, the true facts of the story. You know, so when we when we um, generate and devise our messaging for all the different things. So most, more recently, we've done work around cancer services. It's those real life perceptions, you know, people who going back to people using the services, the outcomes, the people that deliver them. Those messages are actually what resonate with people. They don't want to hear from me saying, do this, do that. They want to hear from people who have lived experience. And I think you have to trust that because the emotion um, plays a massive part in terms of delivering message. As we, as we move into, um, hopefully a level of normality. Obviously, there's things that you've uh, had to adapt uh, with the NHS. Are there things that you would like to kind of maintain from the pandemic kind of in your communication? Or are there things that you'd like to adapt moving forward? If you've got full control over the NHS communication, and I'm sure that, you know, you may well do in a few years time, um, are there things that you would like to be put in place? I think, you know, more channels, but how we use them properly and how we target people with the right messages in the right way on the right channels, because we don't have that autonomy at the moment. Um, so it would be, you know, having greater flexibility and creativity to use those channels and to be really innovative. You know, we all can fall into the trap of the same old communication, the same old channel, the same old method. How do you stand out from the rest of the crowd? What do you do? You know, so it's it's having freedom. And I think that's really, really essential for all communicators in having that that flexibility, that drive to be innovative and a, and a little bit different because, you know, it's, it's nice to see those successes. Last questions. Um, if there are any young sports journalists or aspiring comms people uh, looking to kind of get into the industry, would you, any advice you'd offer specifically a in getting into the nhs or be into the kind of wider comms industry i think across it all it's just about experience you know offer yourself up you know go and see what life is like it might not seem relevant but go and see what life is like in a hospital join their communications team you know even if it's offering in a volunteer role a, a day a month if it's in a radio station what can you do it, it might it might seem mundane and old-fashioned, but making a cup of tea, you know, it, it's all about making relationships, um, understanding how industries work and just put yourself out there. It can be really disheartening. But I think particularly in the realm of media and communications, they're sought after jobs. There's a lot of journalists, there's a lot of communicators. Um, but what makes you stand out from the rest? So, you know, believe in yourself, have confidence, keep trying, don't take those knockbacks. And just develop a really diverse and wide CV and then look at what what your passions are. You know, I, I always went with my heart and, yeah, and I love what I do. If you were starting out now, 
So you're starting your journalistic career now. So me personally, I think if I went down a path, I think I'd like to be an influencer. I think I'd get myself on... Um, why are you looking like that? I'd get on uh, the are you uh, being island. Serious? Yeah, and I'd become... <laughs> I'd like to become God. an influencer. If you had your time again, so your early 20s, mm. the landscape's completely different now than it was kind of 20 years ago. Um, what would you want to do now? I think I'd still want to do what I do, be a communicator, you know. Um, I love journalism. I don't have any regrets about my career path. Um, it was it was challenging. It was rewarding. It was fun. Being a journalist is great fun, you know. Um, but I, I, what would I do differently now? I honestly don't know because I think now with... Um, internships and grad schemes there's a lot more doors open um so I, I think I'd still be putting myself out there in terms of the organizations I want to work for so we've I guess for the last six months been fortunate enough to do a couple of pieces with the NHS one of them that's gone national and has been uh I think they said if there was a BAFTAs for the NHS work it'd be right up there um Oscars you mean yeah but Actually, like so, like you said, my wife works in the NHS. My sister works in the NHS. Um, it's really exciting um, to kind of be able to be part of that and help play a minuscule part in any kind of form of communicating and kind of offering any support in that sense. Um, how important is it to kind of be able to collaborate with different partners um, rather than kind of doing everything internally? It's really important because it's it's about engaging those people from all different backgrounds and communities and not only that you know not everyone is on socials so via those different channels whether it be print or broadcast is really really important so we had a, a I had an article printed yesterday working in collaboration with one of the trusts in British Vogue now you wouldn't imagine ever seeing something like that from the NHS but it was an insight into um, birth in a pandemic you know at a time of so much death and that, for me, as a communicator, is is really rewarding to see such a prestigious, high fashion piece doing NHS work. Yeah, I guess, and it must you must like when you retire, when you come to retirement in a few years, you'll kind of <laughs> you'll look you'll look back and go, do you know what? Like working in that environment at that time, like incredibly challenging but how rewarding must it be to kind of look back and have that mm. on your cv or portfolio of work absolutely and you know i hope that this is i mean covid19 is here to stay but this is once in the lifetime um work experience you know it's highly unlikely or you would hope that there won't be another pandemic like this in my working career and it's changed everything that we've done you know, from remote working to how your teams build to your relationships, you know, it's it's been a really challenging and different time. But we're coming out the other side of it and there's there's that big light at the end of the tunnel. Claire, thank you ever so much for very welcome. joining us. Um, good luck on your continued journey of saving the country from COVID-19. And yeah, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me.